Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On today's show, we are, of course, talking about diversity or the lack of it in veterinary internships and residencies. Now, we know that a significant number of new graduates enter these programs each year, and ever so often we engage in lengthy conversations about why so many seek post-grad educational opportunities. Is it a confidence or a competence issue? Well, that's not exactly what we're going to talk about today, but we may touch on it. What we do know is one population that's really, really reliant on trainees is academia. And realistically, new graduates go into these programs. The the folks that do go into these training programs are potentially poised to enter future faculty pipelines as well as certainly other sectors in the veterinary profession. But this is really kind of where our interests related to diversity and inclusion really pop. What are we doing to ensure that we can grow a representative diversity, group of diversity and among faculty, right? So unfortunately, there isn't a lot of great data on this because few programs, few specialty colleges collect data related to race, ethnicity, or gender. Now, last year, interns and residents who identified as underrepresented, racially and ethnically underrepresented, made up about 13% of trainees within the U.S. colleges of veterinary medicine. So I collect data just from the the colleges and schools and colleges about their trainees. Now, in the wake of the racial unrest of this year, there's been a lot of chatter about gathering better data, about recruitment and retention for future faculty pipelines. And what do we know about Inclusion and how what are the experiences of interns and residents who are coming from underrepresented and or marginalized backgrounds? So to get into this with me today are Dr. Smith and Morello from University of Wisconsin at Madison and Dr. Laura Nelson from North Carolina State University. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Awesome. Super excited to be here. Thank you. Yes. So as is our custom, before we dive into all of the questions, I'd like my guests to give a brief intro of themselves. Tell us a little bit about you. So Sam, why don't we start with you? Hi. So my name is Sam Morello. I am a uh, clinical associate professor of large animal surgery at the University of Wisconsin. I've been here about 10 years. I'm from the East Coast, did my training at Cornell and then Penn, and I've been at Madison since then. And although my clinical interests are very much with the horses and the cows. A lot of my research interests over the last five or six years, as I think Lisa can tell you, have have centered around really people in veterinary medicine more so than just the animals and how we intersect with the profession, both in a professional sense, but also in a personal life sense and sort of how all that intersects. So work-life balance, gender issues, racial issues, and inclusion issues. And so I've gotten to work uh, with a lot of different people, Dr. Nelson being one of those outstanding individuals, and I've gotten to know Dr. Greenhill through that as well. And so I'm really happy to get to be here and talk to a group of people. And I love just sort of discussion about ideas in these topics and getting to kind of help people and not just animals along the way. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us today. So, Laura, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah. So, I am by training a small animal soft tissue surgeon. So, it's always um, potentially dangerous when you have two uh, surgeons doing social science research, which uh, we take some pride in. We have a whole logo. I made it myself. I have been. It's not a joke. I'll give you the logo later. I have been at NC State for about three and a half years as the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs. Went to vet school and from Ohio, did vet school at Ohio, did my surgery residency at Ohio State, was on faculty at Michigan State for about nine years and moved toward um, academic administration in large part because I became more and more interested in the science of teaching and learning, did a teaching fellowship and then a graduate certificate in higher adult and lifelong education. And so like Dr. Morello, I'm, I'm very interested in the ways that veterinary medicine has a culture 
as norms, how we think about the education process, how we think about student success and support. And so, you know, some of the things I'm very interested in at, at NC State and elsewhere are curriculum and how it supports students, hidden curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, which is the messages we send to socialize the students along the path of training and how we look at success and how we prepare people for careers. And I think in my perfect world, you know, veterinary medicine is a profession that is, has a very open door that also sets people up to uh, feel that they're able to be successful in a wide variety of careers after carrying hopefully a minimum of baggage about what they can and cannot do as graduates. So um, House Officer Admissions, I have been chair of the internship committee at Michigan State. I have been a small and residency program director. So I also have the perspective of somebody very engaged in house officer training. And it's an interesting juxtaposition to think about DBM education and then how that transitions to house officer education. Great. Wonderful. Well, why don't we just dig on in? So Sam, you've done some research on this topic. You and Laura have. So, you know, what does that landscape look like with respect to diversity in, in some of these programs, or at least, you know, the programs that you looked at? Yeah. So back in 2015 in the ACVS, so the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, and then 2017 in the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. So that houses not just the internists, but the cardiologists, oncologists, neurologists. I conducted some pretty um, wide-scale survey studies looking at work-life balance, and, and at that time, really mostly gender issues. But I was able to collect quite a bit of data just about individuals and demographics in doing that research. Across both colleges, um, really got data back from about 1,500 individuals, which at this point I think is the largest data set we have on specialists in veterinary medicine. And those two colleges really make up the two largest specialty colleges in all of veterinary medicine. And so, you know, when I published on that data, the, the largest groups really are, are the gender groups, right? The men and the women. And so we had collected data on, on, on race as well. But truthfully, when I was going through and doing statistics on the proportion of people that were, we'll say, married or not in academia or not, the power for doing statistics on anything other than you know, large groups was pretty low. But since that time, I've gone back and I've really tried to take a closer look at the, the, the breakdown by race. And I've tried to do it in a really thoughtful way. So I tried to do that by disaggregating the, the data. A lot of times when we have data reported in veterinary medicine, it's been reported as underrepresented minority or underrepresented in veterinary medicine minority. And that just, that doesn't really cut it when we're talking about individuals, right? When we're talking about identities, it doesn't cut it when we're talking about even the different types of animal breeds we're talking about. So why would we do that about people? Like, so we've gone back and, and I've looked at that within that big group of individuals that I surveyed. And so about out of that 1500 sample size, there were 121 individuals who identified as something other than white. And I mean, I can, I can give those breakdowns. In the ACVS, about just over 92% of respondents were white. And in the ACVIM, just over 91% of the respondents were white. Mm -hmm. And I mean, ultimately, we had about 4% that were non-white women and 4% that were non-white men. But when I break that down to the disaggregated data, the most well-represented among the poorly represented racial minority or ethnic minority groups, about three to 4% of, of individuals were Latinx, which, which was about 53 people overall across both specialty groups. There are about 31 people who identified as Asian, which was about 2% overall. There were 13 people who identified themselves as Black, which was about a 1% representation. There were 21 people who said that they were of other ethnic race, or which, which I think in, in the context of that study was something that was either not a, you know, not a choice on in the study. So it was some other uh, ethnic minority that we didn't allow for, or it was a mixed ethnic minority. And then there were three Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And so those were either 1% or less for yeah. everything else. So, you know, it, it's much more poignant to, to point it out that way, rather than lumping it um, all together. Overall, it was about 8% non-white. 
And then, you know, we can look at that in a variety of different ways. We can look at it by specialty, by subspecialty. The group that had the quote unquote best representation were the small animal surgeons. It was just under 10% of small animal surgeons were non-white. And again, Latinx and Asian were the two racial or ethnic populations that were the most well represented. And the least well, the poorest quote unquote showing um, was among the large animal surgeons where it was uh, under 5%. I think it was about 4.6%, maybe 4.9% of large animal surgeons. Um, were were non-white. And I mean, you know, I, I, can, I can drill down in it from there, you know, the number of practice owners, the number of people who identified as promoted faculty, you know, all that stuff matters, right? Because it's how they're representing themselves in the profession. It's how they're role modeling. It's how they're able to progress into leadership roles and influence culture, influence practice, influence themselves through a managerial role. So I think that, you know, when you get to a group of specialists, like Laura and I are, like lots and lots of other people in veterinary medicine are, we spend our days reading papers, publishing, writing, you know, all veterinarians do that really. And so that's why data is important because when people don't know things, that's immediately what they go to. They go to reading about it somewhere. They want to know the facts. I think most people, if not all people in veterinary medicine can respect that sort of information. And so the first hurdle, as you kind of pointed out earlier, Lisa, to to get over in the process of making change is, you know, proving where the problem is. And there's no better way to prove it than to show just kind of what a bad state we're in by putting those numbers out there. So, so Laura, when you, when you saw some of this data that we're working on, you know, what was your reaction? <laughs> I mean, were you really yeah. surprised? <laughs> no, no, I'm not surprised. I'm not. You know, and I, when I think about it, and it, maybe it's more, what are the things I think about when I think about what it means that we have a very, uh, a very white specialty faculty, especially within these two large colleges. But I think it, it doesn't take a long time existing in colleges of veterinary medicine to know that you know, across our faculties, faculty diversity is is a big deal. And turns out veterinary faculty don't fall from the sky. Like we we train them. Like we are in charge of the process by which they are trained. And so it's a funny gap that the conversations around diversifying the profession seem to happen at the DVM education level and the pre-vet level. And we need to get into high schools and we're getting these students into our curriculum and they're like, well, where, where are all the faculty? <laughs> and they're like, oh no, well, don't, don't look over there. You know, we, we got you here. You, this should be fine. And when we have so much control over that, I mean, the majority of residency training programs are situated in academia. I think when I think about that, it's like, you know, what, what are, why are we not including the value of diversity, you know, if, if universities, if College of Veterinary Medicine value, value diversity, why are we not thinking about that in our house officer selection programs? Why are we not thinking about them in our mentorship programs to make sure that all of our students feel that if they choose to do so, that a house officer program is something that they can aspire to? They're getting the mentorship, they're getting the experiences they need to be competitive for those programs. And, and also realizing that we are, we are never going to address some of the issues we have until we have a more representative faculty. And that's going to include participation of universities in selecting a more diverse house officer class. But also it's going to take pressure from the specialty colleges to say, this is important to our business model. This is important to our identity. This is important to our future. And to make it something that is a a metric that we can look at, but also a value that we have. This is part, this is a part of the future of our profession that we need to take seriously. So I, you know, I think about it in that we, why are we not paying attention to this other piece over here? Cause that's in our halls, it's in our control. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that there's probably some kind of, well, but yeah, we haven't got them here yet. So we are going to kick that can down, down the road. And I'm like, yeah, the can is only four years. Like it's just, it's just, it's just four years. And it happens every year. Right. And so it's, it's really, it's kind of crazy. You know, one of the things, I mean, everybody knows I'm a data, data hound and, and I'm always collecting a lot of data, looking at data, memorizing data. And, and what has always kind of shocked me is that we just don't have 
I mean, there's no data on applicants to the programs. There is no data. I mean, there's just no data. In this day and age, you know, in the year of Beyonce 2020, like, I just don't understand, like, how is there no no data, right? And it just, you know, I mean, I think there will be data moving forward because I think that that is certainly a response of, of a lot of folks in the community. But it's been kind of, to me, as someone who looks at data all the time, I'm like, what do you mean there's no data? Okay, well, do you have this? Do you have that? Like, what what, what do you have, right? And so, um, so it's just, it, it is interesting to kind of conceptualize that 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 hasn't been something that has really kind of tickled people to collect. Yeah. Beforehand. Yeah. It wasn't important. I mean, as Laura was saying, like faculty at universities are the common touch point for essentially every veterinarian in America. And the the specialty colleges are the theater programs for all those faculty. So it's the most natural, it's the most natural sort of pipeline for if you want to create role models, if you want to create basis for recruitment, if you want to create those, those, those climates and those cultures that are going to enhance inclusion and have people who sit on admissions committees and in recruitment offices and you know, it's just, it's the most natural, it's the most natural place to start looking. So Laura, having led uh, some of these programs and kind of, you know, overseen the selection process, like tell, tell us a little bit about, at least about the selection process that you've kind of overseen. And, and do you think that's reflective of, you know, kind of what goes on in this in part of the world? Well, I mean, there's hopefully been some recent literature in veterinary surgery and some other, I think there's some articles coming out too about the elements that uh, house office selection programs tend to use. And, you know, I'll say that my experience on those, you know, especially as a more junior faculty member was very much in line with that. So I guess, what are the rules of house officer programs in academic veterinary medicine? One of them is you don't recruit, the people come to you, you're a great program, you will get the applicants. And so there's very little solicitation of applications. Um, There is a, you get your BI or MP application, right at the top of that are things like class rank and GPAs. You're automatically anchored to numbers very early on, the transcripts at the end. Class rank has been used as a way to kind of cut across different colleges of veterinary medicine. So, well, I don't know what a 3-8 means over here versus what it means over here. So just tell me where they were in their class. That is problematic on a number of levels, even in normal times, because class rank takes people that, that are actually fairly tightly clustered. If you look at the distributions of students within a class and magnifies different, very minute differences in performance, like very, very small. I've mm-hmm. talked to uh, colleagues who've had to go out to three decimal points in a GPA to differentiate somebody for class rank, or they say, okay, well, we won't go more than two decimal places or one decimal places. But even having that conversation means that there is not a measurable difference, a valid difference between the students. And also ranking, you know, doesn't tell you anything about how good that student is because, you can envision, let's call a hypothetical university where every student, their, their, their worst student is above average nationally at another school where their best students below average. Class rank doesn't tell you anything. And the other thing is class ranks are generally calculated from GPAs, which are going to wait, be weighted based on a lot of multiple choice exams that students took early in the curriculum that might competent or ability to take a multiple choice exam might help you in a board exam later. But what it doesn't often tell you is very much about that student's ability to communicate, to synthesize information, to learn from failure, to engage with others. And so it's a number that's also very biased toward a certain kind of assessment that doesn't reflect the entire individual. So we, but we anchor that. It's right at the top of the application. And, and then you read letters of rec, which are also very <laughs> letters of rec and Class rank are the number one and two indices for house officer selection across most programs based on surveys that have been published. And they are, they're not great data. (laughs) I think the hard thing is that, you know, there aren't other sources of data that, that, that are more preferable. And some of that I think comes from programs not having a strong sense of what exactly are we looking for and how do we get the information we need to make a decision. Instead, we look at the data we're given, 
And we try to say when whatever definition is in our head, who we think would be the best. And that, that has consequences because we've all got a different definition of what that is. And I think historically, and I think this is reflected in the statistics that, that Samantha shared, life experience and acknowledgement of barriers have not generally been a part of that conversation. And I think anything where we're, we're trying to tease apart very small differences and we're using historic definitions of merit often come with an assumption that students have had the mentoring, they have the relationships, they've had the opportunities, they've had the time and the resources to volunteer in research labs over the summer. Uh, They've got somebody who recognized excellence in them and wrote them a great letter of recommendation. They were comfortable right out of the gate their first semester of vet school and could get an A in anatomy rather than a B, which is going to knock them down in their class rank by probably at least 10 in some curricula. So I think we make a lot of assumptions there that don't really mean we're recruiting the best house officers because we're using data that doesn't correlate necessarily with the things we really want to recruit for. And I would say I've been in house office training long enough to know that sometimes that system works real well, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we don't know about what effect that has, because I think what Laura's saying is absolutely true, is is does it does it eliminate those candidates at the time of application review, or does it does it deter those candidates even prior to that to that time? Because I, I think what we can't figure out right away from the data that we have, and this goes back to the idea of data and collection of data, is you know right now the numbers of the very very cursory and and, and somewhat crude numbers we have really on what are what is our pool. So what proportion of our graduating classes are are classified as URVM, and then what proportion of of that goes into internship programs, and we really only have data on veterinary medical colleges that have internship programs, not the private practices. But those proportions right now are really different than what the graduating class numbers are. And the proportions of those who are represented in residency programs right now are also quite a bit lower than those graduating programs. So, you know, what, what's, what's the factor? Is it that they're not applying or is it that they're not getting selected? And if they're not applying, is it part of what Laura's describing, is it that, oh, my application isn't good enough, so I'm not going to apply? Are they not getting selected? And is part of a deterrent to an application some of that GPA class rank issue? You know, is that part of an application to vet school issue as well, which is a whole other conversation, you know, which I think a lot of vet schools are undergoing right now? Or is it something else? You know, is it something about, and there's a lot of research in the human medical field about why do people not apply, for example, to surgery residency programs? And a lot of that has to do with the perceived, you know, lifestyle issue, a perceived issue for some women about how they're going to be treated, about their ability to pursue their family goals during that period of time. And, you know, how did these, how did these things differentially affect groups in veterinary medicine? And, you know, that goes way back. That goes back to us needing to see how first-year students come into veterinary school thinking about what their career is going to look like or what they want it to look like, and then seeing how that changes either because of what they've been told, what they've experienced, or what other stressors I think they've experienced during their four years. So by the time their fourth year is what has changed, by the time they finish their internship year, what has changed? And I think that that pressure of, not to say that you know, academic achievement isn't truly important because it's going to be a part of how you need to be successful in in a residency program. But but the message shouldn't be that, you know, if you're not in the top quarter of your class, you're not going to get a residency and you're a failure. So because there absolutely are different personal characteristics that are, you know, of value and that there are ways to supersede a bad year in vet school, a bad couple grades and still be an outstanding veterinarian. 100% agree with everything there. And I think that the, we just don't have the, the qualitative data to understand how people make decisions. But I think a big piece of that is also mentorship and sponsorship. Like I would not be a surgeon if it weren't for having surgeons say, you should think about being a surgeon. Like I think being recognized as having potential is a, a massive thing, especially if that wasn't part of the trajectory that you knew was there when you went to vet school. I think that 
that ability is a big deal. And some of the work that, that I've done and presented at VEC a few years ago looked at five graduating classes of students and, and looked at their GPA, so their academic performance based on the definition of that particular university's College of Veterinary Medicine, but also looked at award receipt. Like who got end of year awards? Oh yeah. And um, in that in that sample, which was five complete graduating classes, um, uh, male students in the top 20% of the class were always gonna win a senior award. Underrepresented in veterinary medicine women were less likely than white women to get an award. And white women were only going to get, if they were in the top 20% of their class by the standards of that university, 40% of them got an award. And so, in, I mean, an award's not everything, right? But it's a proxy for somebody saw you and thought you were great at what you did. So even though the students were academically in the same echelon, there was a difference in the way they were recognized. And so, and I, and that, and that is a kind of a chicken or the egg thing, because if you don't have people that understand the ways that, or can't see excellence in people that don't maybe remind them of a version of themselves, if they can't see that because they've never, they've not seen diverse uh, examples of academic excellence, then they're not going to, they're not going to pick it out and mentor it. And that's a huge problem for us, I think. Well, I mean, you know, there's so many other, I mean, the, the whole selection process, (laughs) Ooh. Okay, there's like a huge cringe <laughs> there because I think that that from the jump it's kind of a setup, right? And so, you know, with the letters of recommendation, there's some there's some really interesting new research just about the language that men and women use in letters of recommendation to describe, you know, the the gender spectrum and just kind of the language that they use to talk about excellence and success and all of that. So there's there's that piece. But then there's other pieces like, you know, I mean, for the most part, you should be like, I mean, how bad did the letters get? Like, I'm an axe, like this person is an axe murderer, right? I mean, like, like don't let them be in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, it's coded language too, because it's sort of like, it's, it's you trying to say, if someone has said, well, these were, this was a very solid student is like, that could code to this person's an ex murderer in some ways, because there's such this expectation of hyperbolic language is very right. translate what people really mean. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, we also see, and to get into that mentoring piece, like yeah. we have research that's going to be coming out soon that you know, racial underrepresented, racially underrepresented applicants rate the mentoring that they received and all of that experience that we talk a lot about, how important it is, but we don't say what they're supposed to be learning. Yeah. Note my bitterness <laughs> there. But, but, you know, they, they certainly rate mentorship high, the quality of mentorship high, but it is statistically different than their white counterparts. That's one piece. Then the climate data that I've published, we also see that, you know, students of color are more likely to be mentored and confiding in a staff person than a faculty member. And so when you take both of those pieces, you know, into consideration, yeah, okay, so they might have a high rank, but they don't have somebody to write them a letter. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's really challenging. And then the other piece is as as someone who considers herself a recovering grade addict, (laughs) you know, I was like, I got a 99 and I was fighting for the last point. Right. You know, in in grade school, like the pressure, you know, the pressure to get this, whatever the magic number is, the 4.0 or or better, you know, it, it, really, really makes it an intense situation. And it also breeds this competitiveness that just can't be healthy. We know it's not healthy. And, you know, also it's explaining why, especially in the midst of COVID, where a number of institutions have kind of switched to pass-fail, where students are kind of freaking out because they don't know what that means (laughs) in terms of class rank. Yeah, we are are one of those institutions, I will say. We are being pass-fail for two semesters now. Absolutely. And so I, is there any kind of, you know, quiet movement on the horizon to kind of, you know, make the process a bit more holistic? In as much as anything I do is probably not really that quiet. Yes, absolutely. And so um, I think in associating with AABMC, the group of us are looking a little bit and, and some of this changing in class rank and grading and so on has come as a result of COVID, but I think it's, it's illustrated some vulnerabilities that maybe been there all along. 
And there are, you know, so a lot of early conversations happening about what we do with that. But the bottom line is, you know, whether I want it to or not, and whether a lot of our schools want it to or not, class rank is not going to be that valid in the time of COVID because there were some schools that went to opt-in pass-fail. And so your class rank is going to be whoever decided to be numerically rated versus the people that opted out. Some schools like ours will have a semester or two that will not calculate into their class rank, which limits the amount of their overall time in the curriculum. And class rank was already already calculated differently depending on the university. So NC State does not use include the senior year or the, the fourth year in class rank. So it's only preclinic for us. So I think that something that, again, maybe has never been all that great is now going to be starting with the class of 2022, kind of, kind of messy. Kind of messy. Um, so, you know, maybe that's the term I'll use for it. So then it's the discussion about what do we use instead? So what are the opportunities? And I think this has to be a relationship between colleges of veterinary medicine and the institutions that are selecting house officers about what is, what's the data that you really need? But I, I want that to be some introspection on the other side too. Like what, what makes a good intern or resident? What are you looking for in that individual? Don't use historic markers of, you know, we must have somebody who does this and this, like, what do you actually want? And yeah. I bet that between the CV, I bet between evaluation of transcript, along with potentially asking that students for evidence of performance and maybe key courses or areas, I bet you could get some from there. And I bet we could consider also doing some interviews, some, some focused interviews to get a better sense of that person as a human being. We know that Zoom and Skype work now. Um, You can work with a human resources expert to come up with some good behavioral questions. You could have them work through a case and you'd probably learn more from that than you would the tea leaves of some of the things we look at right now. And so what are the things that we can do to share information better, but also how do we more intentionally select for what we really want and not just what we think we want? Well, I think this gets to like a holistic change on our parts. You know, we keep huh. talking about how we're going to change the process. Like, what are we going to change about the application? You know, are we going to eliminate a GRE in a in a vet school application? Are we going to eliminate a class rank in a VIRMP application? But it, it ultimately, it we actually, I think, need to increase the educational level of an assessor, which is not actually something that most of us have undergone in any real way. I mean, we have, I've I've been, I've been looking at residency applications for over a decade now. And so that translates to some level of, of education on it, but it's really just my own experience, right? So it's anecdotal and it's, well, these eight residents were great and these two were, were not. And so I can remember what those bad experiences perhaps were a factor of, right? But but you know, if if there's really a um, a, a a thoughtful way of assessing more strategically and in a in a cross institutional way, a, a cross individual way, rather than oh, I know this person doesn't write good letters, so I'm not going to pay attention to that, and I know this person does, and that program has traditionally produced good because I actually think that's that's mostly how this happens and. What supersedes a lot of what Laura is talking about, and and you know I have some I have some recent data from a, a large international orthopedic association that we've looked at how people get into that organization and progress through it, and I think it's similar to what happens just in in large medical organizations or really any organization. Personal networks are are like a prevailing theme. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like what your identity is. If you have a good personal network, you're going to be set up. And that's the idea of sponsorship. And that prevails across all of these applications in general. If you have somebody who knows somebody to call for you, you've you've got three boosts in the right direction. And if you don't, you're just, you don't. And, and that, so, you know, either it's going to take a a, a truly sort of anonymized process or a, a real a real revamping of how people are willing to interact with, with the application process and rethink, yeah. rethink it, you know, more, more than anything else. If, if there's going to be a, a, a widening of a, a widening of a, a really how we're assessing an applicant pool to wow. change, to change norms, or, or we have to drastically change the applicant pool so that, we're not, you know, you're not getting 
60 or 160 applicants, if you're looking at large animal residents or small animal surgery residents, that, you know, but you're really only kind of looking at 15 and 50, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I think it's all, it, it's really, there's a, there's a lot that we have to do rather than changing what's on the application. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just seems like the system is frankly so ripe for so much bias, so much, you know, stereotyping. I mean, college, I mean, the, you know, the, the college's reputation, all of these things that, you know, frankly, probably have a very little to do with the applicant's actual qualifications. And, and that's really unfortunate because we know in systems like that, that, you know, underrepresented applicants in any system, not just, you know, this one, but in any system, underrepresented applicants do not fare well in those types of situations. So one thing I did want to mention, and um, this is probably one of the most viewed live stream that we have, and the chat is open. Dean Markell is on the line and wants me to let everyone know (laughs) that that the match program will actually, I've been working with a VC, but working with them to make sure that race, ethnicity, and gender data will be collected this year. And it will be available to programs actually after the selection has, has happened. They're, we're kind of doing some, some piloting around availability of that data <laughs> prior to selection. So, so I'm working with them and, and I'm really excited about that because this year, this coming year will be the first year that we actually have data, you know, kind of on the front and back end that I can actually do some analysis of, you know, at least just on sheer numbers, what may or may not be happening in the process. Yeah. That'll be great. Yeah. That'll be great. So now, Laura, you said that specialty, at least your specialty, (coughs) is not recruit, but I'm kind of curious with all of the chatter of the last few months, you know, for for both of you, are specialty colleges paying more attention to this issue now? Yes. I think, though, it, you know, and and again, we're both both surgeons, (laughs) so we're coming from from that perspective. They have convened a group to, to evaluate this in the ACVS. And I think a lot of other specialty colleges are doing the same. I think it's too soon to tell you what, what's going to come of that. I think hopefully initially at least some, some, some data gathering to accurately represent the membership of the college. But, you know, I, I hope to see also some analysis of, of culture and values in that because I think there's part of it is, I, I think, in, and uh, Sam mentioned it earlier, who wants to become a surgeon? <laughs> like, who are we attracting into this profession? And if we are not modeling the kind of culture that invites, you know, a more diverse membership, you know, then changing our admissions policy is not the problem. It's that nobody wants to be us except for the people that are already like us. And that's its own problem. So, you know, I'm hoping to see from that some, you know, thoughtful analysis of, of our culture and where we can improve, but also, you know, how do we how do we set metrics for ourselves? How do we evaluate our training programs to make sure they support the diverse applicant or diverse residency pool? And there's a lot of work in ICBS around the educational part of that. I think it could dovetail with this. I'm less familiar with what's happening at other colleges right now. And I know that there are some that are far ahead because they, uh, for instance, the uh, lab animal specialty, I think, has a long legacy of mentorship and recruitment uh, with, you know, even as far as undergraduate uh, populations that has, have made that a very, not only diverse specialty area, but also a very inclusive one. And so I think there's some things we should learn from other colleges too. Yeah, there are a number of undergraduate kind of preparatory lab animal, lab animal focused kind of programs. There are a number of them at, uh, at um, HBCUs and other minority serving institutions that have done you know, certainly wonders um, in terms of creating a clearer, a more clear pathway to lab animal. Um, so just a couple of comments from the chat. I want to uh, shout out Dr. Tan, who says that ACVIM has now a task force on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And just a reminder from Dr. Bentley that there are some specialties like ophthalmology and pathology that don't use the math match program. And so, you know, we really have to be mindful with those groups on, you know, encouraging them to also collect data during the application process. So, yeah, absolutely. Great. So now what about, you know, I'm going to... Hey, this is one of the things we do on this show. So, <laughs> that aren't really kind of talking about this. Like, 
you know, and how should we, you know, approach some of those colleges that those specialty colleges that are like, yeah, this is not our thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the groups that are, I, I think that there are plenty of groups that are doing it and they're going to take the lead. And I think it's an expectation now. I mean, I think any group that's not doing it is, I hate to say it, you know, directly, but are going to suffer the consequences because it's what the students expect. And I mean, there was that Time article recently, right? It's what a huge portion of our clients and our patients expect. So ultimately, you know, we have a we have a um, responsibility towards our the future veterinarians, but we also have a responsibility towards our clientele and and the business of veterinary medicine, which is making sure that we are we are creating a workforce that caters to the needs at, at every level of people who have pets. And we haven't really done that as effectively as we should. And so for any specialist college that is unwilling to look at that and think about that, you know, human medicine has had to confront that in a lot of different ways, right? Because their patients look like a lot of different types of people. Yeah. Our pets may not, but their owners do. And so our, our doctors need to, and they can show that in human medicine, it, it, you, can, you can show a direct link to a patient outcomes being tied to a patient identifying with the identity of their, of their attending physician. And I have to imagine there is a similar comfort level in relationship. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just good business in veterinary medicine. Even if it's not morality and humanity, it's good business. So get on board with that. Well, I've been saying for years that when my dog, my my dog Barkley can take himself and his <laughs> debit card with him to Delray <laughs> Animal Hospital then and leave me behind, like he can go handle his own health care, yeah. then we don't really have to talk about this anymore. Yeah, right. But I'm guessing that's not going to happen. <laughs> so we might need to talk about this. Well, yeah. And I think that we have, especially in vet med, because of the relatively small size of our profession, the specialty colleges, like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to also put this on the universities because a lot of those training programs across all the specialties live in universities. And so, you know, you know, even if the specialty college is not the first to be engaged, the university training program should be because that's a part of the mission of all of our colleges of veterinary medicine. And so, you know, I think if it's not one thing, it's the other. And I, I also second the importance of, you know, if, if this is peer pressure works, right? If we're reporting data, we're comparing data, if we're comparing where things are going well and we're, we're talking to our, our graduates and students about, well, why didn't you think about going into this? Like, ah, not that college. Then I think we can learn something from that. Yeah, I, I mean, I frankly, that has been my MO for many years in terms of getting people to kind of recognize that they have, you know, applicants have choices. Uh -huh. right? Applicants have choices and you give them the, the data that they are looking for on the metrics that, that are important to them. They'll make decisions, you know, based on that. And so, so there's, I mean, the chat is just live wire here. So, and there's all of these, now I know a lot of these, these acronyms, but yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of, there are a number of specialties that now have DEI um, task force. So ACVS. ABVP, ACVO, ACVP, ACVECC. <laughs> yep, all of them, and now they're getting together, and there's going to be a there's going to be a uh, uh, there's going to be a cross specialty survey. So we are definitely looking forward to seeing that. Now we do have another question in the chat about residency program selection and, you know, kind of work experience versus internship and how is work experience valued? Do you want to take that, Sam? I can, I can take it. I mean, I, I think we both have perspectives, but go ahead, Laura. Yeah. So, you know, and this comes back, I think, around, around, uh, I was going to say an honest assessment of what we truly want in an applicant versus what we say we want in an applicant. And, you know, I think that work experience, you know, gives in some ways a different set of skills to an internship. I think an internship trained residency candidate alone, who, especially one who's traditionally aged, a kind of undergrad and went to vet school and the internship and then residency, 
I think some of it is around, is your training environment really willing to take on somebody who has a lot of life experience, who's not necessarily going to immediately, you know, is, is going to respond to that teaching and coaching potentially differently than somebody who has a lot of uh, experiences? And what are the assumptions of incoming experience that you expect of an incoming resident? So I think that we, again, in thinking about our specialty colleges, thinking about what makes a successful resident and whether our ability to train residents is really flexible to the identity and experiences of the person that come into our programs is something to think about. I both want very much to, to see our specialty colleges more diverse in all the ways in terms of experiences and you know, racial and ethnic diversity and uh, sexual minorities, so LGBTQ diversity. I want to see that. But I also don't want pro, you know, programs to accept people that they can't train effectively. So I think it comes with both of those things. Historically, I've seen that, and there's some literature to suggest that, that more than two residencies for surgery anyway, you start being viewed as a less attractive candidate. For, for candidates that come from a private practice background, not a lot of research on it, but it's a wild card because people can't rely on you having the same perspectives and experience that somebody with a much shorter time in an internship can. Yeah. And I, I think those things, I think all of it varies by specialty in general. I know that I've seen, I've seen people come from various backgrounds and then go into, you know, come from various backgrounds and then change careers and then go into something like radiology or have have done something and then decide to be a small animal surgeon or something. It, it depends on the background. It depends on the experience and it really depends on the individual. I mean, there, I, I agree that it takes a very select individual with a very specific ability to demonstrate trainability an affinity for learning and academic performance to come out of, especially a private practice experience and, be able to show that they're going to withstand not just the academic rigor, but the, you know, sort of the, the hierarchy and, and hours of a, of a residency system. It, it is not an exercise for the old, truthfully. I wouldn't want to do it at my age again, you know, so, but, you know, I don't, I, is that discriminatory in some way versus a group or an age? Perhaps, but you know there is something. Did we just tip over into ageism? (laughs) I mean, uh, possibly. I introduced the new topic here for the next podcast, but but you know what it does bring up, which I think is 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 definitely its own tangent, but but is something of consideration. If there is a reason that people don't pursue an internship right away, and that reason is that they are a residency right away out of internship. I I don't think anybody's going to get a residency without having done some version of an internship for some structured, you know, learning. I I think that would be very hard. But if there's another reason, and that reason is that some individual feels that they need to go and make money for a period of time because they, they need to start paying their loans back or that there is some sort of family commitment that they need to meet and they don't have the time to commit themselves to, you know, what, what can end up being sort of a educationally selfish three years if there are other individuals in their, in their nuclear structure that, that need that attention. And there are those situations that, you know, either there are ways we need to be rethinking some of our some of our flexibility in certain residency programs or what they do with that time and why they do it. And then, you know, considering that person on an individual basis and, you know, reading that letter of intent critically, but making sure that that individual, you know, is to whatever extent they feel comfortable, honest in that letter of intent about what their goals were and are. And, hopefully we're not biased around those things and that we can be thoughtful around them because I think those can be some of those situations and that's important too. I think another part of that is just getting letters of recommendation for the amount of weight we place on that academic letter is very hard coming out of a private practice. And on second, the really inflexible residency programs. And, you know, I've I've mentored a number of students who are like, well, I've thought about specializing, but I'd like to have a family. Like they're very inflexible to lifestyle goals that are different than just doing another four to five year hunk of education. 
And that's another thing that's going to change that affects the diversity of our specialty colleges and the success of people once they achieve specialties. We don't make it easy to have any kind of life other than work all the time, wherever you match. Hopefully it's somewhere you want to be after you graduate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we've we've talked a lot about kind of that front end and the selection process and kind of, you know, what folks are doing. And I'd be remiss because I shouted out everybody else. So Susan Williams, I'm shouting out your Association of American <laughs> American Association of Avian Pathologists has a DI committee. So like I gotta get all the the, the, the groups in. <laughs> so Yes. And, and another comment. So I'm also mentioning um, that the AAVMC AVMA Joint Committee is also working with ABVS and the specialty colleges um, with a special focus on DEI. Um, but I do want in my last few minutes to kind of pivot a little bit because we've talked so much. And this is a, a challenge, I think, when we talk about academic diversity, equity and inclusion. We spend so much time talking about admissions that then it's like, OK, well, y'all are in. Yeah. What are you complaining about? Like, so, okay, people are treating you like trash. Well, I mean, welcome. Like, you know, so, like, so can we talk just a little bit about how underrepresented students are kind of faring in the programs? I mean, certainly we know that there is a lot of information out there. And I remember there was an article. Was that last year or year before? I don't know, pandemic time. I tell people all the time, I don't know what year it is anymore, about how challenging the environment is. And, and certainly, Laura, you just talked about the inflexibility of it. But what about inclusion? We know that there are certainly some well-being issues. And when there are well-being issues, for me, inclusion issues tend to be lurking in the midst as well. You either have one or the other as primacy, as primary, but please know that they're both there. So, you know, what's what's yeah. going on there? Well, I, I have the same kind of spidey sense of that, you know, where I think that, yes, I think that there are inclusion issues. I think, that, so some of it is the culture of the specialty and who who is it patterned after? What is the archetype of that particular specialty college and how flexible is that? And what behaviors are tolerated? Who gets to speak? Who gets, you know, given the benefit of the doubt? Who doesn't get the benefit of the doubt? I've experienced that through a somewhat gender-related perspective rather than a racialized one, but mm-hmm. it is a different thing to be a woman in some specialty colleges than is to be a man. And I imagine, you know, without that personal experience that that being a, a racial minority in a specialty college is, you know, is 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 going to trigger a lot of the same stereotypes and assumptions. And I assume you don't know this, and so you can't do this that other minority groups have in certain colleges. And so I think that, you know, to what what do we do to remedy that? So first of all, I think this goes right into investigations. So how do we support house officer populations in you know in general well-being, but also how do we how do we train and police house officer training programs to make sure that the people that are running these programs are fluent enough in these issues to be able to mentor across identity, which is always going to be an issue, right? And what are the what are the ways that we can support students? And it could be affinity groups in an, in an institution. So we have a place or in a person that can kind of keep tabs on everybody who's a house officer, but pay particular attention to those that might be the only of their of their their background or race in in a in that particular specialty area so that they have somewhere to turn other than the faculty in the section they're training them because they may not find that they have the support they need in that how do we make sure they have the support the coaching and and ombuds or other place they can go but it's it's hard i i think that training from the programs is an essential part of this to make sure we're able to do this well so I think, I mean, I think Laura and I actually have a little data. Um, it's not about the residency training programs, but we did a survey of uh, academic faculty at 23 veterinary medical colleges and could show from a culture perspective that uh, people who identified as underrepresented minorities experienced their 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 racial identity as a disadvantage, um, as a as opposed to people who were white. And that yes, that was also similar across gender, but people who identified as underrepresented minority and also as LGBTQ identified there or as, as disadvantaged as compared to those other groups. And so, you know, 
it, it brings up the point, it brings up two points actually, that the residency is three years and then their career is hopefully 25 to 30. So if there's any environment that's going to be structured to be able to have, you know, yeah, ombuds or other areas for support, and they have, it's not just going to be, you know, the mentorship of people in their section or other people there, you know, there's the residency, at least in my experience, was a wonderful time with lots of support with my residency mates across the entire hospital. It's usually actually a pretty good time of peer networking as far as just friendships and other people going through the same thing you're going, even if you may not share similar identities. But but academia is actually a, a better place to be than some other spots, yet we still see it there. I think the majority of specialty trained veterinarians, or I know the majority of specialty trained veterinarians are going to end up out in private practice just because that's where the labor market is. And so those are going to be small, much smaller places that aren't going to have that sort of structural entity or, you know, or, or imposed training element for people to be thoughtful um, and intentional about those sorts of issues. And, so, you know, what are the, I think, maybe college level support structures or other things that we can institute that will help them out in that professional world? So is, is it ABMA level? Is it college level? Is it some other subset of the college that is, I think a lot of the human medical colleges have these sort of like, you know, specialty groups within the colleges for those sorts of identity groups so that they have another place to go. Because I think it's harder to find those communities once you leave that academic environment. And that sort of support, you know, does translate into achievement, success, happiness, career progression, et cetera. And the little data we do have and again, I mean, I, we can't put statistics on it because the numbers are so small. The proportion of individuals who identified as non-white that owned practices was much lower. Yeah. And yeah. the proportion of individuals who were promoted within academia that identified as non-white were much lower. So, you know, is it those support structures, those competency evaluations, those whatever, you know, it, it, so it, it's, all, it's all there. And so it is important and it's, and it's clearly affecting things in some way, but it's not just those three years of residency. It's, it's beyond that. And, and I think those years are going to be more critical. Yeah. Yeah. Just some great comments. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that the other thing that at least in my observation and some of the data that I've collected is making sure that existing faculty kind of get their, get their lives together because, <laughs> because it's not just how they, you know, how they engage house officers is a part of the hidden curriculum and what the students are observing, right? And so if students are observing less than optimal behavior that might be, you know, misogynistic, racialized, whatever it is, or just, you know, kind of not great, <laughs> you know, then students also recognize that the, that is kind of how they can approach your house officers, right? This is learned behavior. Yeah. It's not just naturally occurring behavior. It's a part of a system. And so I think that, that it's also really, really important to note that students are watching and this is how they learn how to how to veterinarian, right? <laughs> and so, and so, you know, we really have to be mindful of whatever that kind of not so silent messaging is. And so, mm -hmm. so before I wrap up, just a couple of other comments from the chat, one being a barrier um, for BIPOC trainees and queer trainees, maybe really kind of the salaries that are associated with internship and residency, which yeah. are you know, I was talking to someone not that long ago and I was like, you know, for some of these, they are less than, you know, less than two times um, uh, the poverty level. Right. They're really like they are, they are eligible for public <laughs> public benefits yes. um, at that um, at those salary levels. And so that's something that really is, you know, something to be mindful of. Yeah. And and then kind of going into situations where, again, where you might have sexual harassment, Dodgemore, all of those kinds of things. And you're not being paid much like the retention 
kind of hard to to, to stay in that. And so, and again, uh, some more uh, ABV, ABVP um, just did some surveys on on gender and race. So we'll be having some some data there. And there's a, a note here from Dr. Kidney. Uh, they experienced some pushback from a vocal minority of members, but you know, just just keep pushing. Just yep. Just keep going. So we might have to have another show on this because this was super popular. Um, and we only got through like a little bit <laughs> of stuff. So <laughs> well, so, so thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air to my guests, Sam Morello and Laura Nelson. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, might have to have you back in a few weeks to continue the conversation. Be sure sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app. We're on all of them. Of course, you can also watch the show on YouTube and be sure to like us on Facebook at AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air Podcast.